0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in heaven, we are here. You are here. Lord, your truth is your truth. Bless us today by sending your Holy Spirit, give us discernment, give us clarity, help us to understand, and then Lord, help us to know how we can act on our understanding for Jesus. So bless, we pray, in our presentation today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I've got a a handout I'll give to you later in the meeting. Don't make sure I don't not do that. But today we're going to talk about something that I was looking for information on and I never found it. I didn't find anybody who had done this presentation. So I have to study it for myself and I'm going to share with you uh, the result. Now all these things that we've done these five days are going to be on uh, on my website greatcontroversy.org. You'll have the text. The whole text I I'm not always presenting and today I'm going to stay pretty close to what I have uh, down here because uh, I want to make sure I get to you what I what I plan to get you today, and after that we'll have maybe time for some Q and A. But um, anyway, let's begin here. Our presentation is what is the is is Heppenstall versus Andreasen on the atonement, and so our first questions are going to be about the atonement. What is the atonement? I'm going to abbreviate this part. Uh, because I want to get to the evidence here. But when you think about the atonement, you have back in the Garden of Eden, you've got God letting down a ladder. He sends his son, and you might not be able to tell that picture, but that's in our church. We have a cross, a beautiful stained glass cross there, and Jesus comes, he becomes a human. He goes, he dies on the cross for us and goes back to heaven. God let the ladder all the way down. And so the atonement is the removal of sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and God wanted to get rid of the sin, and so He promised the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Jesus would come. There would be a tremendous battle. God would make atonement uh, through His Son Jesus for our sins. And so The sin problem is the giant problem that God is working on in the great controversy. Uh, Jesus is the one who chose to be willing to do that. We have Romans 10 verse 4 is a text you might uh, remember. It says there that Jesus is the end of the gospel, he is the goal of the law for righteousness. Let me read it out of here. This is the ESV version today because I couldn't find my Heather on the way here. Romans 10, verse 4. And so, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word there is telos, it means the end, he is the goal, the goal of the law, the end of the law, the, where God is going is Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness. doesn't mean the law is over, it means that when we draw close to God that it's through Jesus that sin is addressed, it's through Jesus that, that we receive his gift of righteousness. And so God's resurrection power, the same power by which he made the world is available to us through Jesus. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes but notice the condition everyone must believe so God makes atonement he makes possible atonement and but we also have a part we want to choose to cooperate with him which we talked about yesterday now for time today I'm going to I have a whole section on Leviticus 16 and atonement there the day of atonement and I'm going to skip that it was, And uh, there's a part there at the end of Leviticus 16 where what do the people do? Some people say this is all just done by the priests, but actually the people have several parts, and uh, not the least of which is standing in their tent door and being repentant uh, and praying for the high priest and praying for themselves as their sins are atoned for in the most holy place that one day a year. But again, I'm going to bypass that. I'm going to go straight on here to this part about Happenstahl versus Andreasen. This is a study that I looked for, and nobody had done it, nobody at least had printed it anywhere, and uh, this is one of the most pivotal things I think we could talk about today. So we've kind of reviewed a little bit about what the Atonement is, but today there are two different views about the Atonement in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, maybe more than two, but there's two predominating views and we can trace these views to two contrasting figures we have ml Andreassen, and we have edward happenstall so let me give you a little bio on each of these guys these are the key writers the key theologians who did this for us ml Andreassen was born in 1876 he died in 1962 he actually lived he actually lived at the same time part of his time as ellen white and spoke with her. Uh, Edward Heppenstahl was born in 1901 and he died in 1994, so Hepenstahl is after Andreasen. Both had theological training. Both of them were born in Europe. Uh, They both came to America and lived and finished their life in America. both taught at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. Uh, So these are some of the similarities. Both were significant writers and speakers both, in particular, address the atonement. M. L. Andreassen wrote books like the Book of Hebrews. It's a commentary on the Book of Hebrews. He wrote uh, uh, a number of books. And this one has been sold for the last almost 100 years. You might have it on your shelf. The Sanctuary Service by M. L. Andreason. And that has almost never been out of print. In fact, after Ellen White's books and after Bible Readings for the Home, this book is, is certainly the most widely distributed Seventh-day Adventist book on planet Earth, The Sanctuary Service by Yemal Andriessen. Uh, by the way, Emil Andriessen was also a pastor in churches. He, was, he had conference positions. He was a conference president. He, was, um, he worked for the general conference at the seminary and many things. Well, anyway, Edward Hepenstall, uh comes later, and he is a very prominent figure. Hepenstahl uh, wrote many books. I've got two of them up here. The Man Who Is God and Our High, our High Priest. And he had other books he wrote, but these were very influential. Happenstall taught at the seminary. He comes from Europe, uh, and he uh, shaped the minds of most of our ministers for many years. His thoughts, his writing, his classes... I actually talked with some ministers who were in his classroom, and uh, very interesting pieces from that. But anyway, let's carry on here. Uh, this man, there's two different views of the atonement. There's a book that George Knight came out with here uh, whenever it was, 2017 or around about there, 2018. Uh, where he talks about the last generation and how bad the viewpoint is uh, that teaches that there's a last generation and the sanctuary, God's cleansing his sanctuary. And George Knight has got a lot of things to say in there. He's got a couple of pages in his book where he actually goes through and he says there's two main views on the atonement, and he lists the uh, the good guys, he lists them by name, and he lists the bad guys by name as well. And uh, I'm in one of those lists. Um but among the, that he puts in his book, but anyway, he lists among the good guys, Edward Heppenstall, and he lists among the bad guys, Al Andreassen. And so there are two differing views on the atonement in the church. Uh, by the way, George Knight says in his, book, in his book, these groups really didn't differ that much on the aton- on the question of the atonement. But we'll see if you feel that way Uh in less than an hour. So, uh, Andreasen, by the way, is known for this chapter in his book called uh, The Last Generation or The Final Generation. That chapter is widely uh, appreciated or attacked in the church and that is uh, something that Happenstahl seemed to have in his mind because of many of the things that Happenstahl wrote. Anyway, let's review side-by-side side some of the teachings from these guys. Again, we're interested really in what the Bible says. I'm leaving out the whole part of uh, Bible teaching like I've done the other four days uh, because of time, and I want to make sure we get a clearer picture of what Andreasen says and Hepenstahl says. And one of these, I believe, is very, a very biblical view. But anyway, let's put side-by-side side some of these teachings. They're both highly influential. And um, let me pick it up right here. One of the key things that is an important item when we talk about the atonement is the nature of man. What is man like? What can can God do with man? What can God not do with man? Can man overcome? Can we not overcome? We've talked about this these last few days. Hepenstahl describes what he regards as an innate condition which we cannot change. He believes we have certain things about our humanity that can't change. And also he believes that we humans really don't have any substantial part in God's atonement plan. We're kind of important audience, but in terms of participation, we're really not that engaged. So what I want to do here is share some different for we're going to look at at their teaching on the doctrine of sin. What is sin? What does Happenstall say? What does Andreason say? Which one is more biblical? So first of all, I want to take uh, for you um, four quotations from this book, The Man Who Was God. This was, uh, is a highly influential book, and I'm going to give you these four quotations in order, in the order they appear in the book, and they'll be right here on the screen. So uh, let's go ahead and look at those. So this is about sin, the question about sin, can God really give us victory over sin, this is about our nature. So let's see what Happenstall says, then we'll look at what Andreason says. So on page 107 of this book, Edward Happenstall says this, this state into which all men are born is called original sin, not in the sense of inherited guilt, but of an inherited disposition to sin. In that statement, I could, I could almost agree with. I wouldn't use the language original sin because that's really not Adventist or Bible language. But if we just look at what he's saying here, its I wouldn't talk about state either. I would talk about the situation we're born into. But anyway, giving all those pieces away, I could say we could more or less pretty close to agree to that statement, not have a big fight over that statement. That's statement number one. Same book, that's page 107. Now you go to page 122 in the same book, and Hepenstall writes this, Original sin is not per se wrongdoing, but wrong being. We just told us it doesn't have anything really to do with guilt. But now he says that it means that we are, if you have original sin, which we all have, he says, we all have wrong being. And again, we might, might be able to agree with that. Here's the third statement talking about Jesus um, He could not have been born into a state of sin as we are. So, Jesus, so we are in a state of sin, says Heppenstahl. Uh, Jesus could not have been born into a state of sin, says Hepenstall. and then that's page one forty four and on page one forty six Hepenstall writes this: all this is all the same book. Jesus talking about Jesus, he had not the slightest trace of personal guilt that would come from from what, from being born into a state of sin or from remorse over some some sin committed. So personal guilt would happen if Jesus was born into a state of sin that we are says Hanestall. But going back to those first statements he says we're all born into this but not we don't inherit guilt. But over here on page 146 Jesus didn't have this and if he did he would have personal guilt. You know what? Although Happenstall says he's not teaching original sin, he is. And how does he get us there? He sort of gets us there incrementally. First he tells us he's not teaching it, and then he teaches what's on the screen right there. So anyway, you can look at that. Uh, To me it seems slippery. But anyway, that's Hepenstahl's view on sin. Uh, and all these views on what sin is, the nature of Christ, they all have to do with the atonement. Can we overcome? So that's why we're looking at these. Um, let's go and look at what Andreasen says. Okay, so here's from uh, M. L. Andreasen, And these are all going to be quotes from his book, The Sanctuary Service. Satan has no power and never had to make any man sin. He can tempt, he can seduce, he can threaten, but he cannot compel. Through the last generation of saints, God stands finally vindicated. Through them, he defeats Satan and wins his case. They, the last generation of saints, they form a vital part of the plan of God. They go through through terrific struggles. They battle with unseen powers in high places but they have put their trust in the Most High and they will not be ashamed. Sanctuary service, page 295. He tells us here that Satan does not have any power to make man sin. Doesn't have that power. He can threaten, but he cannot compel. And he tells us that through the last generation, notice this, the charge that people make against Andreas and he's making a human-centered version of salvation. He's making us kind of God's dependent upon us. But notice again how exactly what he does say, to be fair to Andreasen. Through the last generation, something happens. Through them, he defeats. Who defeats Satan? God defeats Satan. Through the last generation, God defeats Satan and wins his case. They form a vital part of the plan of God. So... I would agree with that. I believe that in God's plan we form a vital part. I don't believe we're saving God. I believe He, that through them, through us, He defeats Satan. He's He's showing, and that's sort of the way it was with with Job. So anyway, there's a little bit on what Andreason says. Um, let's look at another Andreason. This is page 49 again of the Sanctuary Service. We're looking in uh, at comparing what. Edward Hepenstall and what Emil Andreasen teach on sin. So here we have this one, forgiveness operates after transgression when the damage has already been done. True, God forgives the sin but it would have been better had that sin not been committed for this the keeping power of God is available. To forgive the transgression after it has been committed is wonderful but it is not enough. There must be a power to keep from sinning. Go and sin no more is a possibility of the gospel, here we are, but to sin no more is sanctification. This is the eventual goal of the gospel. The gospel is not complete without it. And uh, anyway, that's page 49 and there's more, but I'll carry on here. Now this one is going to be Heppenstall on justification. We talked yesterday about justification. So we're shifting from the topic of sin to the topic of justification. Here's what Happenstall says. When Paul speaks of the righteousness which is by faith, he is not thinking in terms of righteousness in men, but of their legal standing before God. Justify never means in Scripture to pour the quality of righteousness into someone, but to establish righteousness forensically, or to make righteous by an act which is entirely outside of men. So Happenstall is saying to us that Justification is entirely forensic. It's just counted. It's counted to you. Everything else is extra, which yesterday's presentation we saw, I believe, otherwise. So anyway, that's Heppenstall. When you talk about sin, what sin is, you talk about what justification is, when you talk about how Jesus was victorious, all those kinds of pieces take us to dealing with the atonement. George Knight said in his book that um, really... Hepenstahl and Andreasen didn't differ that much on the atonement, and yet some of these major pieces, they differ very dramatically. So that's Hepenstahl. Let's go to Andreasen. Oh, this is the book that that quotation appeared in. Paxton's The Shaking of Adventism. That was a significant book some years ago. Um, and he quotes from Hepenstahl there? Okay, let's look at, uh, back now to Andreasen. So this is Andreasen talking about when we compare. Happenstahl talks about, about being uh, counted right, but when we look at what Andreasen talks about, he talks a lot more about personal holiness, a lot more about holiness. So here's some quotations from again from Andreasen. He's giving he's talking about this case of this woman. You'll remember the Bible story. This is Imel Andreasen, After a while the woman repents, seeks God earnestly, receives forgiveness. In the day of judgment, or as in the type of the day of judgment, her sin is blotted out and even the record is no more. She stands before God as though she had never sinned. She is clad in a robe, pure and white, she is a new creature in Christ Jesus. What has happened? The death penalty which hung over her has been removed, Christ has died for her, died in her place. He has taken upon himself the punishment which was due her. He has suffered for her sake, and by his stripes she has been healed. The old life is a thing of the past. She is a new creature. Christ has taken her sins with him into the grave. There he paid the penalty. There he made an end of sin, and there through death he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. When she, by the grace of God, gave up her sin, when she received forgiveness and cleansing, and cleansing is italicized in Andreasen, When she heeded the admonition, go and sin no more, sin came to an end. There was no more sin, no more uncleanness, no more transgression. It had all vanished. Christ had done a complete work. He goes on to say, what happened in this supposed case, in this supposed case, happens in the case of every truly converted person. Christ takes entire charge. He takes the sin and its punishment. He forgives and cleanses. He creates a new heart and mind, and the sinner becomes an entirely New creature. That's page 203 and 204 of the sanctuary service. I've condensed it, so I've put a few dot, dot, dots there, but you can read that. Hepenstahl focuses uh, on Jesus to the exclusion of believers, the believers Jesus came to save, uh, sadly, but G- uh, Andreason talks a lot about the experience of giving our sins to Jesus, being forgiven by him, and being transformed by him. So there seem to be some strong differences between uh, the two approaches. Uh, I might have mentioned this or not the other day. There's kind of two approaches to theology uh, that come into play here. There's kind of an American approach and there's a European approach. Now, and although Andreasen and Happenstall are both from Europe, Andreasen took on the American uh approach of our Adventist church, which is more uh, the approach of, what does the Bible say? We're going to look at the Bible, and if we have an established theological orthodoxy, we always say this, we always say that, we're going to bring it to the Bible, the immortal soul. Uh, is does that is that a Bible teaching, or is that something that was taught, uh, that invaded, that was brought into the church from paganism? Um, we as Adventists will say, okay, well, Whichever one it is we want to know. Well, let's go to the Bible and let's study it out. And we'll study it out all the way through. Even though immortal, the idea of the immortal soul, human immortal soul, natural to us, is very common in Christianity, we're going to look and try to go to the Bible and see, if, see what the Bible says. The, the European approach is more, here's our big list of theological things that we all agree on, and uh, we agree on this, we agree on this, we agree on this. And uh, so the the American approach is check the Bible thoroughly and revise your belief if if you should. The European approach is if we're getting something from the Bible that doesn't look like what we expect, probably we're not following the tradition closely enough, enough, so uh, they tend more to be more traditional. So Andreasen was a teenager, I believe, or so it was, when he came to America, and he Kind of took on the American viewpoint, Happenstahl uh, kept this European viewpoint by going by what was commonly believed. And so uh, in many cases I believe that comes through in his in his viewpoint. Uh, another thing that's kind of interesting, Andreessen's reasoning is mostly inductive from specific to general. Happenstahl's reasoning is mostly deductive, he goes from the general to the specific. Um, Okay, so now let's go on to um, this bigger question is this question of vindication. And that's what uh, people complained about Andreasen that he talks about character vindication. God's character being vindicated by him working through his people to show that, yes, God is fair and just and people can overcome sin through God's power. That bothers a lot of people. That bothers a lot of key Adventists. So when you read this book, The Sanctuary Service, 340, 380 pages, the idea of vindication is only there practically in that one chapter. The word vindication does not come all over the place here. But when you read Hepenstahl's books, just in these two books alone, as I recall, there's like 77 occurrences of, of, of the idea of vindication. Hepenstahl is responding, I believe, to Andreason. He started in the 50s and goes to the... Goes out and dies in the 90s. So this is a Heppenstall uh, quote on the screen. So let's see here on this question about the demonstration God is making. Here's what Hepenstall says. This is from our high priest, page 23. The full account God makes of his character and ad- administration of the universe is independent of man's vacillation. Always there is a transcendent factor about the work of the Godhead in the heavenly sanctuary that must never be reduced to Christian experience, however important that may be. So he is telling us, let's complete the statement, the successful accomplishment of the purpose of God from the throne room makes possible the eradication of sin and Satan and the establishment of the kingdom of God, nothing else will. And again, that's mostly true, but again, Happentall is taking the humans more or less out of the equation. It's all something that God does, and that sounds right. But when we read the Bible, what did we read about cooperation yesterday or the day before? Cooperation. The Bible's full of the idea of humans and God cooperating together. God gets all the credit. we He gives us the power. He's the one that saves, we we, we agree, we make the decision, He p- applies the power. So, salvation is there is a sense in which we're cooperating with God, but God's the one that gives us salvation. But Hepenstahl is telling us um, what God does is, is independent of man's vacillation, it's always transcendent. Uh, when nothing, nothing's reduced to Christian experience. We can't do that. We've got to be careful, certainly, about Christian experience. But he's saying that basically God does it all. We don't do anything. We just kind of watch the program, and when it's over, we're atoned for. That's not the teaching I think the Bible has. So that's Hepp talking to us and sort of taking, taking us humans almost completely out of the equation or at least putting us way over on the side. And I think Andreessen may provide a, a much more balanced picture there. Now in contrast, let me go to Andreasen, and I didn't write this one all out, so I'm going to read it to you. This again is from uh, his book, The Sanctuary Service, and this will be from an extended quotation from page 300 to 302. So this is a very extended quotation from this book, but see what you think about this word. You're going to listen, you're going to hear the word demonstration five times. Uh, and this idea, this is the last generation idea that got people very unhappy with Andreas. And you know what's interesting, when this, was, when this book was published, nobody was unhappy about it. The, everybody was agreeable to it. The publishing house was agreeable to it. The editors were agreeable to it. This was, this was what people believed, Adventist people believed. Today though, strangely, we have a, a the seminary actually publishing books against this view which they did in uh, 2018. So uh, let me read this to you. It's not on the screen. It's on my page. Sin, like some diseases, leaves man in a deplorable condition, weak, despondent, disheartened. He has little control of his mind. His will fails him. And with the best of intentions, he is unable to do what he knows to be right. He feels there is no hope. He knows that he has himself to blame and remorse fills his soul. To his bodily ailments is added the torture of conscience. He knows that he has sinned and is to blame. Will no one take pity on him? Then comes the gospel. The good news is preached to him. Though his sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. All is forgiven. He is saved. What a wonderful deliverance it is. His mind is at rest. No longer does his conscience torment him. He has been forgiven. His sins are cast into the depths of the sea. His heart wells with praise to God for his mercy and goodness to him. As a disabled ship is towed to port, as a disabled ship towed to port is safe but not sound, so the man is saved but not sound. Repairs need to be made on the ship before it is pronounced seaworthy, and the man needs reconstruction before he is fully restored. This process of restoration is called sanctification and includes in its finished product body, soul, and spirit. When the work is finished, the man is holy, completely sanctified, and restored to the image of God. It is for this demonstration of what the gospel can do for a man that the world is looking. In the Bible, both the process and the finished work are spoken of as sanctification. For this reason, the brethren are spoken of as holy and sanctified, though they have not attained to perfection. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. He gives you some other references here. A glance through the epistles to the Corinthians will soon convince one that the saints there mentioned had their faults. Despite this, they are said to be sanctified and called to be saints. The reason is that complete sanctification is not the work of a day or of a year, but of a lifetime. It begins the moment a person is converted and continues through life. Every victory hastens the process. There are few Christians who have not gained the mastery over some sin that formerly greatly annoyed them and overcame them. Many a man who has been a slave to the tobacco habit has gained the victory over the habit and rejoices in his victory. Tobacco has ceased to be a temptation. It attracts him no more. He has the victory. On that point, he is sanctified. As he has been victorious over one besedment, so he is to become victorious over every sin. When the work is completed, when he has gained the victory over pride, ambition, love of the world, over all evil, he is ready for translation. He has been tried on all points. The evil one has come to him and found nothing. Satan has no more temptations for him. He has overcome them all. He stands without fault before the throne of God. Christ places his seal upon him. He is safe and he is sound. God has finished his work in him. The demonstration of what God can do with humanity is complete. One more paragraph. Thus it shall be with the last generation of men living on the earth. Through them, God's final demonstration of what he can do with humanity will be given. He will take the weakest of the weak, those bearing the sins of their forefathers, and in them show the power of God. They will be subjected to every temptation, but they will not yield. They will demonstrate that it is possible to live without sin, the very demonstration for which the world has been looking and for which God has been preparing, it will become evident to all that the gospel really can save to the uttermost. God is found true in his sayings. That's a long quotation, but I didn't cut anything out. I gave it to you without any breaks. That is what Andreasen teaches about overcoming. Andreessen says that through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, sin can be overcome in our experience. Hepenstahl says we are in a state of sin and that guilt goes with that state. So these are utterly contrasting views on the atonement, utterly contrasting views. Um, So don't miss the differences there. So let me summarize a little bit of this here, and then I'm going to give you the handout and we'll see where we are there. To summarize, Andreessen's view on the atonement highlights God's gift of human free will and the great controversy war as a demonstration of the goodness of God's character in his process of transforming men from sin to righteousness as vindicating his once-for-all solution to the sin problem through Jesus. Heppenstahl cannot see that and urgently highlights God while obscuring any significant role for believers. These are different views on the atonement rooted in different views about sin and different views about the power of the gospel. It is not that Andreessen was a perfect and infallible super-saint. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Heppenstahl was an evil man. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that these, these workers had different and in some respects mutually exclusive views on very key theological points. Both men, I believe, loved God and met well, but Hepenstall's views led to a series of departures and digressions from the Adventism that had gone before it. Hepenstall's views sharply reduced the importance of the sanctuary. They muted the distinctive Adventist understanding, and in my opinion, they moved us backwards. And so, what we have today in the church are two very different views on the atonement. We have a view that uh, agrees with the Bible, and uh, Andreasen, I propose to you, and we have a view that agrees more with Happenstall and perhaps not so much the Bible. So let me give you now this handout, and um, I'll have to explain it to you because it's a very strange handout. The key frustrating point that they've written these three books in these last couple of years attacking this viewpoint seems to be uh, from the Sanctuary Service, the this business about the final generation chapter that really bothers them, which is, by the way, I just read to you from. So, what are the facts about it? You know, we have different opinions. We can have different opinions all day long. What are the facts? So, what I've got here is, uh, I believe, some facts. So, what this is is a table where I went through that chapter and see what uh, Emil Andreessen actually wrote. And I numbered the paragraphs, all of them. And on the leftmost column, you see paragraph 01, paragraph 02, paragraph 03, 04, all the way down. And I've kind of taken what uh, the topic is, some of the different things there as you go through, or the headings that are in there. And as you go across the page, uh, you'll see references. How many references are there to the last generation? How many references are there in this third column to vindication? How many references to demonstration? And I'll explain that. Uh, References to something being necessary or depending on it. There's court terms that are used, references to the sanctuary, references to holiness, references to victory, and then some Bible verses that are referred to um, either implicitly or explicitly in the text. So I kind of went through with a fine-tooth comb to see what does says say because it's so objectionable uh, to some people. And people say that he is making it a human-centered kind of salvation. So let's, uh, let's review this a little bit. So this is basically a thorough deconstruction, not a deconstruction, but it's, a, it's an analysis of the chapter. I wouldn't deconstruct that chapter because there's nothing there that I know of to deconstruct. Um, I believe that it's a very truthful chapter and there's not too many things I would change about it. So what, when we go to the, get the facts about this terrible chapter that some people hate, when we try to get the facts, um, how many times does it reference the last generation? So if you look at this front page and then the second page, you will see there's 16 references at the bottom of that table on that far column out of 66 paragraphs. There's 16 references to the last generation and most of them come on the second page there that you have. So there are some references to that language. How many times do we talk about vindication? Does Andreessen talk about vindication? Well, there's three on the front paragraphs on the front page, and there's two more, so five times. Happenstall talks about vindication eighty times between these two books, and Driesen talks about it five times. Interesting. Uh, what about demonstration? And Heppenstahl says virtually nothing about demonstration, but here you'll see that thirty-four times in these sixty-six paragraphs The idea of demonstration is given. Um, All right? Who's doing the demonstrating? And this is kind of a key point uh, because they say the the objection to to Andreessen's view of the atonement is that it's a human view of the gospel. So you'll see the X's and M's and G's and S's there. Uh, X is a Greek letter for Christ, so we often use that to refer to Jesus. Uh, M refers to, uh, man. G refers to God. L will be, uh, what, the last generation. These are all listed here on the bottom of this, that table on the back page. S is for Satan. So when you add them all up, there's 34 all together. And you see on the bottom of the second page, 21 times he refers to God making vindication. One time he refers to man vindicating. Three times he refers to Jesus doing it, once to the last generation, and eight times to Satan. These are rather, not vindicating, but evidence, demonstration or evidence. So almost all of that, except for two references, it's all to God making the demonstration. It's not that humans are making the demonstration. It's that God is making the demonstration through humans. So this charge of this that that this view of the atonement is a human centered view of the atonement is not it's absurd it's not factually supported by the facts anyway you can go across the page and see that Andreasen does use language that talks about how it's necessary um, and then he's got many court uh, legal terms, he's got sanctuary terminology, and you can see all those piled up there, we don't need to look at all those, um, but there's the data for you if you want to know what paragraph it's in and how many times it's said. Uh, Happenstall says very little about holiness, certainly about human holiness, and reason talks a lot about sanctification and holiness. So these are some of the major differences between M.L. Driesen's view of the atonement and Edward Hepenstall's view of the atonement. Today, most of the ministers in the church up until, rec- until fairly recently, um, for the whole generation, almost all those ministers were taught by Hepenstall. And so this view has become the dominant view that's published in American publications when uh, some of our history writers write about it and so on, some of our theology. The Hepenstall view is much more... is overwhelmingly supported, and the Andreasen view is kind of overwhelmingly disliked. But there's kind of a cleavage or a difference between our church members and our theologians sometimes. Our church members who read the Bible and the writings of Ellen White tend to come up with the Andreasen view of the atonement, and our administrators uh, or theologians who read the works of George Knight or, and I'm not trying to be hard on George Knight, but a certain group of those writings tend to agree with Hepenstahl's view of the atonement. So, anyway, that is a little bit of actually kind of an in-close look at Andreessen and Heppenstall on the atonement. So, I'll finish with this statement and then we'll have some time for Q&A. Uh, in Sanctuary Service 319, uh Imel Andreasen writes this, Through the last generation of saints, God stands finally vindicated. Through them, he defeats Satan and wins his case. They form a vital part of the plan of God. And that is a thrilling prospect, kind of intense and close. God wants to be close to us. He wants Jesus wants to come close to us. But you do have a problem when you have a church that has two mutually exclusive views of what the atonement means in the same church, how do you fix that? It's kinda like in uh, Britain, people drive on one side of the road and in New York, people drive on the opposite side of the road. And uh, we all speak English, I guess, but you might have a problem if you get together and try to drive on the same road. And so this is a dilemma, it's a perplexity, it's an issue in the church. You cannot, there's some things you can have differences of opinion over. To have two totally different views or almost totally different views on what the atonement is is a very difficult proposition. How do you solve it? But that's where we are. And it traces back largely to these two men, men who I believe met well, uh, but again, one seems to be following, in my opinion, uh, a very close to the Bible and spirit of prophecy view. The other... Perhaps intends to do that, but his theology seems to be shaped by some other principles as well as the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy. So there we have the atonement, and again, I sort of shortened the presentation so we'd have some time for any feedback from you. So let's pray, and then we'll carry on with any uh, comments or questions. Dear Father in heaven, this is an important issue. This is really important. Help us to be close to the Bible, help us to be close by the Holy Spirit, help us to study these questions and find Bible answers and be faithful and true to what you show us in your word. Help the church, Lord, because how this can be solved, I don't know, but Lord, you know. And so thank you for people who are carefully and diligently studying the topic on the atonement Show us a path forward, Lord, so that we can meet your purposes for this last generation. And so we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So I hope this didn't seem too academic, but I think it's one of the most important questions the church faces today. Any questions or comments? Okay, so I'm going to repeat the question for the recording. So uh, there was a statement that at the seminary, Uh, which we're not trying to be hard on the seminary today, but there was a statement that um, a large number of the seminary professors were quite opposed to last-generation theology. One of the concerns that they indicate is that Andreasen teaches a so-called third atonement. um, And he goes to Hebrews, the first couple of verses there, and he portrays as though there were three atonements. What's the answer to that? Uh, I... I don't believe there. I would I would phrase it that way. Uh, The we have really one atonement. You can subdivide it into different pieces, and you can emphasize this and that. But I don't really think I think that they're not being quite fair to Andreasen on that point. Um, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I addressed some of that in my presentation at Sacramento Central, which is somewhere on the internet. Uh, Old, new books, old error. So if somebody wants to get into more of that, you can Google around and find it. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think that's fair to Andreasen. um I'm trying to remember here if I can give you the very page and the very statement because um, I have several other charts and things I didn't bring which has some of these statements all put together in where they are. So let me see here. If it is where I think it is, or if it is not where I think it is, it's not there. I think that that might be in his book, the book of the book of Hebrews. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's where it is. So, um, if we, however many places we subdivide the atonement into, I mean, we could certainly subdivide it into. 16 or 30 pieces, depending on how much you want to go into detail. Um, in the viewpoint on the gospel, which uh, in your handout today, the back page, I sort of summarized the, the night-widden narrative. So if you want to look at that later, uh, you'll find out more about that. Uh, in that view of the atonement that they both support, and there, there are people who agree with them, uh, in that point of view, you really don't need a sanctuary. There's very little that happens in the sanctuary. It, it, it's pretty much you could teach it in the Baptist Church, the kind of teaching that they really ultimately have. Uh and the atonement is pretty much all handled at the cross. Um it's all Jesus' substitute, is very little, if any, of Jesus' our example. And uh, there's very little, if, any, if anything, for man to do because it's all focused on God. And and yet, when you go to Revelation 14, what do you have? There's Jesus standing on Mount Zion, but there's not a period there. It goes on and says, and with him, 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. So just when you think you would see a total focus on Jesus, he brings in his people beside, right beside him there and he's the only one that makes atonement, we don't make atonement, but the plan of salvation, the the plan of atonement that Seventh-day Adventists have understood during the first century or so of our existence was there is a significant component where humans are involved. Uh, But the part that's come in from the 1960s on, and even a little bit before that, uh, gives you a viewpoint which is kind of We just need to wait, and when God's good and ready, He'll come. Uh, We should be nice people, uh, but God does it all, and and, uh, it's good for us to be sanctified, but again, that's very much of an option rather than a necessity, whereas this statement is saying that through the last generation, God plans to vindicate and complete His work. In other words, He didn't finish the work in Ellen White's day, he hasn't finished the work so far in our day. It seems that he's waiting. And when we started our presentations early in the week on the first one, we noticed that God's purposes uh, to take the people directly into the promised land, and that was his plan, to take them directly in, was thwarted because they did not, the people got all into a frenzy and said, we can't do it. And so they had to go back in the wilderness and die in the wilderness and God brought another generation in. Uh, one last piece on this response is uh, our thought is that uh, a lot of our, our you, you guys that are the younger guys in the seminary today, the interesting thing to me is that you guys don't need to buy into Happenstall or Andreessen. You don't have really a, 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 a you don't need to do Happenstahl because he wasn't your professor to begin with. You don't need to do Andreessen. He wasn't your professor to begin with. And uh, today, our newer workers are, are able, if, they're, if God so leads them, to study the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy writings for themselves. You don't really have a horse in the race. You don't have to pick one or the other. You just want to find out what the Bible solution is. And I think that if you study there, uh, you'll, the Lord will lead you. So the, the controversy over questions on doctrine, the nature of Christ, and all that business... Is really a controversy that should be easily solved based on the facts. It's a really a controversy almost from another generation, and today our younger workers don't need to be. You don't need to agree with George Knight. You don't need to agree with Larry Kirkpatrick. You don't need to agree with agree with Happenstall. You can study it out, and I and I do think the Lord will lead. So I, I think there's good days ahead on this topic, although right now, like you said, many many key people in the seminary are. Crazy opposed to this. What was what's interesting is that um, when they were nitpicking Emma Andreason, there was nothing on Heppenstall. So that's why I asked them. I said, Well, you know, if we're seeing that, you know, we're using these quotes against Andreason, can we do the same for for Because there's plenty uh, there. So, you know, it's basically whatever fit the narrative that they want to. to... Well, if you were, uh, if you agreed with Heppenstall's view, Generally speaking, would you want these four quotations that I showed you? That we're all, we're all born into this state, but it's okay, we're not guilty. And then you go down to the fourth one over, and he, he admits, Jesus had not the slightest trace of personal guilt that would come from being born into a state of sin. That, that's, that's an interesting uh, thing he did there. Page 146, the, this, the man who was God. Question, yes? It's not as much of a question. Yes, I spend most of my time the, the what I want to do when I'm breathing because I know I've got so many breaths. So I love to read what Sussi has to say about the sanctuary, anything I can find, in, in everything that you can find. And of course, I love the Book of Hebrews. I just can't put it down. Okay, so so, so the statement uh, was that um, when we read uh, some when when the individual said that they saw the the statements taken from Hepenstahl's writings it did not seem to match the bible and spirit of prophecy it didn't seem consonant with that with that, his reading of the bible and when we read something that sort of grates against it it sort of it it, it, it grates on us there's we feel like there's something wrong so again i don't as far as i know Hepenstahl wasn't a bad person he just, uh, but his views on these key points were very, in a very substantive way, were very different from the Adventism that existed up until the 1950s. Another question or statement? Yes. You know, obviously, you know, he spent 30 years. Students um, and pastors, and also leaders that that you know wrote books and didn't think anything of it. Um, yeah. But we need to be, you know. I was mentored by a, a pastor who said, "Sleep with the Bible until it Right. And and, and I feel that's that's the bottom It's all there. Um, I think what happens is that we we, we do want to read a book. I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If we stay with the Bible and spirit of prophecy uh, the question was or the statement was um counsel that that a brother here had been given that we want to stay with the Bible and spirit of prophecy and and that'll that'll be much better for us than uh following human views or views that uh or highly influential views that have been in the church for so long. I agree, I agree. Um, and that's the thing about um, Andreasen is his writings, usually he bounces back and gives you scriptures. Uh, happens to give you some scriptures too, but then there's interpretation. And here's uh, a problem in the church. We tend to begin to rely on certain theologians, or we rely on our favorite speaker. Well, I'm not sure the truth is, so I'll see what Doug Batchelor says. Um, and, you know, the best, the best of us get things wrong sometimes. And, so, uh, and Doug Batchelor would tell you, and maybe he'll tell you tonight or tomorrow when he's here. Um, go and read it for yourself. But uh, study the Bible for ourselves. Let's be careful about trusting in experts. Uh, we can benefit from people who know a bit, um, but we want to always go back to the Bible and the writings of Ellen White, and I don't believe God will leave us dangling in the mud, all messed up there, if we are able. The tro- trouble, it's hard sometimes to get rid of big ideas that get stuck in your head. And this idea that Andreessen teaches this kind of like third, kind of a third phase of the atonement, um, well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. What does the Bible teach? So let's go back always to the Bible, and God will God will see us through. So this topic was probably the most academic of the five we, went, we talked about in our series, uh, and yet we have multiple books being published against these teachings uh, that the Bible I believe gives us on the sanctuary and one of the kind of the, the, the acid test really is does it match our teaching on the sanctuary or can you kind of do Adventism without the sanctuary? If If you use that as kind of a test question, a helper question it will help us sometimes to differentiate between things that are helpful and and can guide us, give us some help spiritually, and things that might sound very good, but might actually be taking us backwards instead of forwards. So, anyway, I I need to pray now so we can conclude. Uh, Let's pause and pray together. Dear Father in heaven, uh, this is a hard topic. I pray, Lord, that you will help us all to be students of the Bible and the writings you've given us, the gift through Ellen White, We want, Lord, that the church will understand and teach the atonement correctly, that it will touch us in our very actions. Here's a teaching, Lord, where if we believe it one way, we might not be as diligent about sin removal because it's an impossibility under one viewpoint, whereas if we understand it the other way, we will want to be very diligent because we'll see how critical it is that all sin be ended. So, Lord, bless us, we pray. Bless, I want to pray for our friends at the seminary and different administrators, people who might totally disagree. We just pray you'll bless and guide and lead them as well as us. And thank you, Lord, that you hear the prayers of your people and we can be knowing that you will continue to guide us if we only are surrendered to you. Help your church, Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Lord, come Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org/audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.